Welcome to Who Watches the Watchmen podcast, a weekly discussion of the new HBO series Watchmen. My name is Derek Wong. And I'm Jeff Zhang. So I guess I'm back, huh? <laughs> yeah, so we, we should probably start with congratulating you, right? <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> I'm a new dad, so things have been a little crazy here, but it's it's good to be back. Uh, I just wanted to shout out and, and give a thanks to Amir Ture. For filling in for me you guys did a great job i think uh oh, thank you um you guys had some really good insights on episode two and i don't know maybe we'll have him back sometime oh yeah i think we definitely should have him you know pop in uh, once every once in a while so let's let's jump into this episode so today we're gonna take an in-depth look at the third episode of hbo's watchman titled she was killed by space junk um this episode was directed by Stephen Williams and written by Damon Lindelof and Leela Bayok. So Stephen Williams and Leela Bayok are both long-term collaborators with Damon Lindelof. I don't know if you know this, but I think Williams directed more than like 20 episodes of Lost. Uh, oh, I know, I I know you're that. a big Lost yes. fan. So yes. uh, I think among his Lost resume are episodes like Enter 77 and everyone's favorite episode, Expose. <laughs> <laughs> you know, unironically, I like that episode. I mean, I, I liked what they try to do with, like, bringing in these characters that... Because I, I remember one of the criticisms of that show was like, well, what about the other characters that we see in the background that we don't... And then, and then they brought them and in then and everyone, everyone yeah, hated, hated them. on them and then they killed what, them right away. What, what were their names? <laughs> Nick, Nikki, and, Nikki and Paolo, Paolo? I think? Yeah. yeah. I thought I thought it was a good episode. I liked it. Um, okay, but but Leela Bayok is a writer who's worked with Damon Lindelof before on on The Leftovers, and mm-hmm. um, together they contributed to some of like the best TV of the last decade with with The Leftovers. Yeah, it definitely seems like he's working a lot with you know a lot of the people he's worked on or worked with on on past projects, and he's just really leaning on those that I think he he probably feels will bring something to the series, which is really good. Yeah, for sure, and I think. Uh, Lindelof shows they have like a tendency to place the big hook for the show at around like the third or fourth episodes. Mm. Um, so like you have like the first one or two episodes that primarily focus on like world building and setting the stage, but then after those you tend to get like the really deep character piece that really pulls you into the narrative. And that's um, exactly what this one was. E- exactly. So like Lost, you obviously had walkabout um the mm, first uh john yeah. Locke episode that was actually the episode that really obviously it, it got me hooked and mm-hmm. and now with this one i can see that lindelof is keeping that tradition alive and well um with this fascinating spotlight on a new character yeah so what, what was your overall impressions of the episode i really liked it i know like I keep heaping my praise on this show, but I mean, I don't, I don't really have anything other to say than like I just really enjoyed this episode. I mean, we're only three episodes in, but I thought this was at least my favorite of the three so far. I think so. Like it, it moved beyond um, setting the pieces in place and then building the world, and it really got to like building characters instead. Yeah, you know. Well, it really built her character, but it also built the world around her character. 
Oh yeah, thing. for sure. You got to learn so much about uh and the character we're talking about is Lloyd Blake. Um and we'll, we'll dive into more who who she is if you guys don't know from the comic. So we'll dive in a little bit more about who she is, but yeah, I, I felt that the episode really did a great job of building this mystery around her but also giving you so much information about her. And we'll we'll definitely dissect that information. It it brought us outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. right? The first two mm-hmm. episodes were primarily in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and now it shows us like uh, more of the world outside of this one town, you know. Let's dive into that first scene then. Actually, when I was uh, so typically, you know, what I my my process, I don't know about your process, Jeff. I'll, I'll go through these episodes and I'll, I'll watch it once, at least once, uh, without any kind of note taking or anything, just to really observe everything. And the second time around or third time around, I'll watch it again and I'll you know I'll take a lot of notes. And uh, what was interesting about the first two episodes, they I guess what I noticed that there was more scenes but they were shorter but i feel like there's actually less quote-unquote scenes in this episode but they were much more dense a lot more information yeah than each it scene was, that we saw i think it was a little less exhausting to like go through uh an outline of the episode on this one because it was in like big more digestible chunks but there's still a lot inside each individual scene you know um i i agree i, I do the same thing i watch it once and then let it sink in, and then I watch it again and, and take more detailed notes. So um, I think you have to with a, with a show like this. There's just oh, so yeah. much going on. And, um, and the, fun, well, the funny thing is, to contradict what you said, though, it took me longer to go through this episode because I felt myself oh, writing. Okay. Like, I was watching a scene. I would, I would be like, pause. I need to write that down and watch a little bit. Oh, shoot. I need to yeah. pause. I need to write that down. Like, there was just so much I wrote down about this episode because I think it is so dense with information, which is really great. So, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about Jean Smart. Are you, are you oh, yeah. familiar with her? I mean, uh, I've seen her, re- uh, like, I've, I, I recognize her in in things. Uh, the most okay. recently, uh, the thing I, I recognize her is from Legion. Legion, right, on, yes. on FX. Um, mm-hmm. I think she's primarily known for her role on the, the sitcom Designing Women in the 1980s, which was just a little bit before my time, so I don't really know much about that. Before my but... time also. <laughs> but I think the role that I associate with her the most is uh, First Lady Martha Logan on on Twenty Four. Did you ever watch Twenty Four? No, that was one show I did not dive into. Uh, okay, so with uh, with Kiefer Sutherland, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she earned back to back Emmy nominations for that. She was so great on that show. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, and it was really really good performance. And so like I think more recently she's been in some prestige genre shows like. Fargo and as you mentioned Legion mm-hmm. which are both on FX and I just, I just think she's a phenomenal actress and to know oh, for this she was amazing for this yeah for this role of Lori Blake it's like it's just a great get for mm-hmm. for Watchmen um, yeah yeah I agree yeah um, so I, I mean yeah let's let's just dive right into this episode okay so well I guess at the beginning of the episode we, we still don't know I mean if you've watched the episode you know this is Lori Blake but you know, we don't actually know who she is at the beginning of the episode. We kind of just see right. her get into this, what looks like a blue phone booth. Uh, actually, what it reminds me of, I, I don't know. I've never been in New York, so I don't know. Do, do they have like those like public restrooms in New York that are just kind of like sitting out on the street? And they kind of look like this. They're just round um, and you go in. <laughs> Not, I mean, we have like porta potties and stuff, but we don't have... I think there are a couple in like the parks and stuff, but I haven't seen a lot of those. Um, if you go to San Francisco, which I, I live closer to, 
you, you'll see yeah. a couple of these and it, they it, that it just reminded me of that it looked like a giant porta potty or a giant like restroom <laughs> that was painted blue but i was like okay i understand this is a phone booth or yeah. whatever like a, a phone booth to, to mars so yeah she she uses this uh i guess phone booth and it's specifically set up to call to mars to call to dr manhattan yeah so so it's like a communications hub in which you can yes. send transmissions to mars and yeah, I think somewhere on the screen, or it says it's the true sat orbital array. Or so I, I saw those uh, words kind of come up. It's the true, the true industries. Yes. Um, Which later we we later we find out that it's the industry that bought out Vite, right? Vite Industries, yeah. Yes. After uh, Ozymandias, he uh, fell on hard times with his technology. Yeah, so she's sending a transmission to Mars. So she starts her transmission by, you know, she says she's going to tell a joke. Uh, she tells this joke about a bricklayer um, who is, is very good at his craft. And he has a daughter that he wants to teach how to bricklay. And he decides that he will teach her how to bricklay by uh, building a barbecue. She goes on to the story saying that, you know, he crafts out the barbecue and he, he lays out all the materials and lays out all the brick that he needs. And after he's done building it, there is still one brick left over. Uh, it's something that bothers him, and he thinks that he's going to have to destroy this. Yeah, because he's like a he's like a perfectionist, right? Yes. Um, yeah, and so he thinks he's going to have to destroy this barbecue and start over. But his daughter, basically, it's interesting the words that she uses to uh, describe it. She says uh, the daughter takes the orphan brick, yeah, and, and throws it into the air, uh, and then she kind of gets flustered, right? She kind of or. Uh, at this moment, we don't know she's pretending, but she kind of, you know, pretends yeah, that and then she doesn't like, oh, remember yeah. the joke. And she's like, oh, you know what? Forget about it. Forget about that yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, shit, I messed up. I messed up the joke. And it's what's interesting is that there's this kind of uh, narrative trick or narrative kind of storytelling the, the director does in this episode by kind of having her tell this joke. But there's a, still a scene kind of going on behind it. Uh, so the scene that we see going on behind while she's telling this joke is that she's you know, she's in, I believe she's in a cab or she's in a car. She gets out, she's walking along and she walks into a bank and, you know, she, she goes up to the teller and, and basically we find out that this is a bank robbery, right? She pulls out a gun, fires in the air mm -hmm. and tells the, the person to, you know, give her all the cash. And what we see is that, um, it kind of pans to the, to the front door. And then we see like smoke at the front door. And then all of a sudden this guy, does he, I can't remember. Does he burst into the window, or does he just kind of come out of nowhere? Uh, I don't remember either. But yeah, he, yeah. he shows but up. He, he um, shows up. Um, he stops some of the henchmen. The woman that we see uh, apprehends a, another younger female, and yeah, takes her takes her hostage. Takes her hostage, and basically, this is the point where we we learn now that this was a setup, right? She says something yeah. to the effect like, "Oh, how did you know that we were going to rob this bank?" Yeah, it's clearly a, a sting operation. Mm -hmm. um, so Lori, who we learn is a member of the anti-vigilante task force, um, she basically baits this guy, Mr. Shadow, into thwarting their fake bank robbery. Basically. Um, yeah. Because vigilanteism is still, or is illegal because of the Keen Act, right? The FBI has every right to arrest this person that is seen as a hero you know we go outside and people are like why are you doing this this guy's a yeah hero. the the public sentiment is clearly against the anti-vigilante task force yeah you hear a guy he's like oh he's a hero what are you doing right yeah like 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 he said um and there there are a bunch of little easter eggs in this first scene too um oh please please dive into yeah this. so the this bank 
is the same bank that we had the poster up on in the in the first episode with the seventh cavalry it's the same bank that uh dollar bill does his uh racist propaganda poster or in the the trailer bank ad yeah yeah exactly i didn't catch Uh, that so it's the same bank and then when Lori's walking through the hallway of the bank to to do the stick up or whatever the fake stick up Mm -hmm. there's one of the undercover cops or whatever like the fake FBI agents yeah yeah he's like reading a newspaper and it says that the the headline is that grisham is about to resign his post on the supreme court Mm -hmm. so that's a nod to john grisham oh Uh, he's okay that's i I didn't i didn't know i was i was i didn't know if that was like the grisham that i know yeah so like he's in this world obviously he's known for uh writing legal thriller novels and having movie adaptations of those I guess in this world he's a he's a Supreme Court justice. So another little remix of history and and the real world in this in this episode. Um, and then so Mr. Shadow is is clearly a a pastiche of Batman, right? Well, that and uh, it actually really reminded me of uh, Kickass's Big Daddy, which is oh, also yeah, 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 yeah. that's Batman. true. Like, uh, right, he's also basically Batman, but right. he actually looks a lot like that iteration, or he looks like Big Daddy to me. Yeah, and then he's got like the gadgets. He le- he's got like the, the little bolo balls. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Um, and then in, in the next scene, uh, skipping a, a little, uh, Senator Keen is like, oh, he's just another rich guy playing dress up, right? So, yeah. Yeah. That's another little... Definitely another nod, nod to, to, nod to, to Bruce Wayne and Batman, yes. Uh, I mean, I wanted to, to point out the fact that... I, I mean, I actually really like some of the writing in, in this. Or it's just... I love the fact that Damon Lindoff is, is treating us not like idiots. Like, he doesn't he doesn't have to spell out everything. Or the, the writers don't... Have, you know, makes it so we don't have to spell out everything. There's the point where she shoots the guy, right? And that's yeah. how... Like that's how he falls to the glass, and that's how they capture him. Yeah, that's and then how they there's apprehend a, him. Yeah, and then there's another guy who basically asks, "Oh, how did you know that the body armor would stop the bullets?" Any other writer or any other incompetent writer, I felt like would probably have said, "Well, I didn't. I right? didn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but like she doesn't say that, and you're just, she doesn't like, even bother. I was like, she just walks away. Yeah, right? I was just like rooting because I was like, oh, thank God she didn't say that stupid <laughs> line. Yeah, yeah. So I have to commend the writing in one way or another for that. Yeah, it doesn't really hold your hand. I, I I always like it when they do do things like that. And then uh, I love the the line that kind of ends the scene. She says, uh, "He's not a hero. He's a fucking joke." And yeah. so I, I guess maybe this is the point where maybe we should dive into who this character is, if the audience doesn't know, right? Right. So this is Lori Blake, and she is the daughter of the comedian Edward Blake. And who he is is it? He is the basically superhero from the nineteen. 19- like 80s and and earlier and he is the 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 hero that actually dies in the original watchman that kind of sets off the whole story and then uh, throughout the story you know it uncovers his murder but one piece of mystery that also gets uncovered is that we find out that he is actually her father Mm -hmm. and this whole the whole time you know the story unfolds that she kind of resents him because she thinks that he raped her mother but to find out that that you know they did have consensual sex and that's what you know that's they did have a relationship so um by the end of the book it kind of implies that she's accepted who he is and she doesn't hate him the way she she used to and uh it also kind of implies that she embraces it and we kind of see it now right she's changed her last name 
back to Blake. Right. right. Um, so I think what's great about uh, what they're doing with with Lori Blake is um, I don't want to say it's a flaw of the original graphic novel, but um, Lori Blake is essentially the only main female character, right? And she's always kind of like an extension of all the male characters. Yes. And she's never really central. And she's always like this good-natured hero. And she just seems to be like incidental to the storyline at most times. But now here they're they're filling in the blanks of like what happened between the incident at Karnak, which is when they confront Ozymandias mm-hmm. in the graphic novel, and, and now. Um, like, what made her become this sardonic, bitter, and damaged woman, right? Yeah. Because she was, was a masked hero at one point. Yeah. You know, she's hunting masked heroes, right? Yeah, and I, th- I think it's interesting that she was so busy not wanting to be her mother, she ended up being her father, Right, she even took his last name, Mm -hmm. and now she's working for the government, just like her father did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so so it's it's an interesting parallel from from the graphic novel. I mean, I think you you would say that it's not a weakness. I I would probably disagree and actually say it is kind of a weakness of the yeah yeah yeah. Um, I, I I do think that you know as as female characters go you know she doesn't get much agency in the the comic and i think i think i just have a such a high regard for the graphic yeah i think we all it's hard to point out its faults but it it is it is one of the weaker points of yes of the graphic novel yeah but uh but also tying it back to the comedian i mean you know he's called the comedian so the this whole narrative of the joke that runs throughout the the episode and the, the fact that she calls you know this guy a fucking joke like I think yeah. there's a lot of this hammering home that, like, you know, she is the daughter of the comedian, and let's kind of let's tie it back to that, which I right. I thought was really clever and, and really a nod to the the graphic novel. Right. So, like, this whole episode is framed by this this joke that she yes tells in this phone booth or or communications hub. So yeah, let's uh, let's get to the second scene. So she she uh, second scene it takes place in her apartment. She returns, I guess, home. And she pulls uh-huh. this a rat out of a shoebox and, and feeds, uh, we don't know what it is yet, inside this right. cage. And, you know, she goes back to her bedroom. There's this item that she's kind of shows up again and again in the in the episode, which is this briefcase, right? Right. Uh, she opens it up and there's what, what looks like a kind of a blue glow that's coming from it. And then, you know, um, we hear a knock. She answers the door and it's, uh, this is when we first... Is this the first time we get to meet Senator Joe Keen, or did we meet him? No, last? he was. Uh, oh, he was at the party last, last week. Yeah, he was at the party yeah. last week. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, he, we meet him. Um, they talk about <laughs> at the door. He he mentions that she caught someone called the Revenger. Right, and then I, she's I, like, I it's just Revenger. No, the the <laughs> and then yeah, and then and then you know she tells us that you know the person that she caught today is Mister Shadow. I'm I'm curious, who do you think the Revenger? Is is based off of if we're gonna speculate. <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe like right? the Punisher or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, that was my guess. Or yeah. you know, uh, maybe maybe an, an Avenger or the Avenger being like Captain America, maybe or something. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. too sure. Uh, and then yeah, he he says the line about the rich assholes, you know, who dress up, and so it's definitely a nod to Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator King comes into the apartment and he asks if uh, he can you know unveil 
whatever's underneath that that hood right. and uh, we find out that she has a pet owl which is a nod to of course her husband i guess i mean i think they do she takes his last name by the end of the the comic i think mm-hmm. um and who we learn is in jail and we, we learned that from the pdpedia files right but now it's officially kind of part of uh the show like everyone who doesn't read the pdpd files has right. so, now knows so that I, he's... I think the implication is that she took a deal to to join the feds and then he decided not to so now he's in jail <laughs> yeah um, yeah and uh he asked um what is the name i thought it was going to be archie but it's a little bit more of a, a clever pun his name is who it's like a yeah yeah so <laughs> what's his what's his name and then uh and then Lori's like who senator keen's like the owl and he's like yeah his name is who, who? Or it's like a it's like the abbott and costello yeah bit like who's on first or whatever yeah so, yeah, yeah um it's an interesting but yeah it's a funny little nod to, to or fu- yeah funny kind of little comedy bit for you yeah. know owl humor i guess <laughs> so uh and they, they kind of get into this conversation where uh the senator is basically telling her that she's going to be asked tomorrow to lead this investigation in Tulsa, right? To investigate the death of Judd, Judd, Judd Crawford. Judd Crawford, right. He lets on that he doesn't think that it's a seven, you know, seven calvary. You know, everyone else, the police force all think it's seven calvary, but he kind of lets on that he doesn't think that. Right. He says that uh, they always take credit for, for these mm-hmm. kinds of uh, executions or deaths, and, and they never said anything about this one. And uh, just to recap, Senator Joe Keene Jr., He's the son of Joe Keene Sr., who is the, the I guess, progenitor of the Keene Act in 1977, which outlawed uh, masked vigilantes yes. um, in the original graphic novel. So uh, that is where the tie comes in for, yeah. for this character. And then he, you know, he also suspects that it could be a vigilante killing. You know, he kind of spouts out some of the more political things that kind of go into the idea of um, having cops wear masks, you know, like it goes into that. And then it's funny. He drops this, they drop a lot of like little acronyms in this episode. One being this DOPA. Yeah. Defense Defense of Police Act. And uh, Lori's like, you fucking called it DOPA, (laughs) (laughs) which was pretty funny. Um, Yeah. And so we also learned that um, this masked police initiative only takes place in Tulsa. It is yes. not a nationwide initiative. Yes. Um, it is only because of the white knight that uh, the cops are required to wear these masks. And... Yeah, it's it's interesting because we, we find that Tulsa has become this kind of hub, right? I think it's in one of the PDpedia files this week. It mentions that you have to go to Tulsa to get the reparations. Like, it's, it's not just anywhere you have to... Like go to Tulsa to do that, right? Because it's it's specifically the the Red Foundations benefit the victims of the Tulsa race race riot, riots, right? Yeah. Um, the massacre, or as Lindelof calls it, the Tulsa Twenty One, right? Um, <laughs> so I don't know if you got this vibe, but I think this is perhaps where you get a little color in the wider scope of where the season is going. Like maybe it hints at like the vast and insidious conspiracy that will was telling angela about last week um mm-hmm. so i don't know if you feel this but like uh joaquin jr is shady as hell he yeah. is super fucking slimy i don't know if there's something about him well it's um, also like i mean depending on your political stance i mean the pdpd files go into 
talking a little bit more of like uh, we we get the the new frontiersman article where it dies that, and it and, basically equates him to like Rush Limbaugh and yeah and basically and, Trump and, and endorses know, yeah it endorses yeah. his his run for presidency yeah so like this also ties into like our uh, uh, believe it or not our first email that we got from uh, from a listener and. So I, I swear this is related to the scene. So just just bear with <laughs> no me. No problem. Um, a listener named Jamie emailed me today, actually, not too long before we were recording this. And this is what he or she, I guess, wrote. I don't know. There's no specification. But all right. So let me just read what what uh, what they wrote. Sure. It says Derek and Jeff. I'm obsessed with HBO's Watchmen. So obsessed that I listen to a ton of different podcasts after watching it. While many shows have clever banter and plot recaps, no other podcast dives as deep as you guys into the lore, mythology, and Easter eggs. I also love that you guys cover the supplemental Pedia materials on the official HBO site. So here's my question. How do you feel about the Pedia material? Do you think it's absolutely necessary to read these supplemental files? Do you think it's a little unfair to the viewers that they have to go into a whole nother website and read written material just to get the full picture of the story. So first of all, I'm actually super stoked that we got our first piece of listener. Yes, thank you mail. so much, Jamie. And uh, and it's not a troll, so I'm I'm super <laughs> happy about that. I think it's we a should minor... read one of those every episode too. No. I know. Uh, um, it's kind of a minor miracle. So thank you, Jamie, and thank you for for listening. Um, yes, thank you so much. So what what do you think about? I, I swear this is this is completely related to the scene. So yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it's related because I, I brought up PDPedia like three right. times now already in during this episode. But I don't think that it's necessary mm-hmm. only because we've seen that the crucial information you need to know is still somehow displayed, I think. Within um, the episode. Within the episode, Correct. right? Uh, I think I equate the PDPedia stuff, if you read the comics... It's kind of like at the end of each chapter, and they call them chapters in in the graphic novel, there are supplemental material, right? Mm -hmm. There's like uh, excerpts of Under the Hood book. There's articles about Ozymandias in the comic, right? right? All those are great world building pieces. And it's it's for the people that really want to dive deep and, and really get to know this world more. But it's not necessarily important for the overall story. Like you, right. I, I believe, you know, of course you should read the whole graphic novel. But if you just read the pages that were actually the comic book panels, you would still get the story, right? right. You'd still get the Watchmen story, maybe without as much depth of, of the, the actual world that Alan Moore's trying to create. Mm-hmm. But you still get the whole, you know, Watchmen story. Right. And I, I feel like the same. I think you can watch the show without uh, reading the PDPD files. But if you really want to dive into this world and really learn as much as you can and, and get all the background about what's going on, I mean, more power to you. Because honestly, the PDPD files are like not even that long. And yeah. they, it's not like they're, they're releasing one every day. They, they're they, really they, interesting, yeah. too. Um, yeah, they are very interesting. Yeah, I, I agree like a thousand percent. Um, I don't think they're necessary. They're pretty much incidental to to the story being told at large, but um, they do really help color in the world mm-hmm. of the show. It really does deepen your understanding of what's going on, and it allows you to make little insights that you might not make otherwise. And the biggest example is this scene, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if you read all the Pedia files 
for this yes. episode. Um, I yeah, I did. I think I did. So this scene is a prime example of that, and and I'm gonna elaborate. So uh, on the surface level, this scene is pretty straightforward, right? You have Joe Keen. He comes in, asks Lori Blake to fly out to Tulsa to investigate Judd Crawford's murder. You get the basic info that he's running for president, and that one of his platforms is to proliferate the mass cop initiative in Tulsa nationwide, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then Lori gives her opinion that these masks are dangerous and that they completely skirt around accountability. Um, so, like, if that's all you get out of the scene, that's totally fine. But if you read the PDPedia articles and you do your own detective work, you can really start to get shades of maybe this big conspiracy that Will was talking about last episode. Yeah. Um, and you get the sense that you, I mean, you still kind of get the sense from the show that you shouldn't trust him. But, like, after reading, right. the, you know, the whole New Frontiersman article, I was like, well, okay, maybe we're definitely not supposed to like this guy well, at not all. Just, not just that, um, the the four letters exhibit oh, yes, yes. of the Pedipedia, mm-hmm. where the exhibit is a letter from Joe Keene Sr., um, which is Senator Keene's father, written to Sheriff Crawford, who I assume is Judd Crawford's father, I guess. So in it, he explains the origins of the gift he sent the Crawfords, the painting... That was the title of the last episode, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Oh, yeah, because I remember last week, me and Amir were like, yeah, where do we you like, think the title comes from? Why did they switch it up? <laughs> so so this was actually a real artist, right? So yeah. like this, this exhibit is talking about that, where it says George Catlin, the artist, he, he fell on hard times and he had to pay his debts um, and he had to sell all of his work, but that didn't stop him from recreating his original works and... Mm-hmm. Most of the recreations had remixed titles from the originals to yes. differentiate them. Um, so hence the little switcheroo of the name and the painting. Yeah. The second um, time he called it, you know, martial feats of Comanche horsemanship. Right. So yeah. I'm assuming this painting is just a symbol of like white colonialism mm-hmm. and a reminder of like the might of Western expansion in the United States. Mm-hmm. And like, um, why do I say that? It's because he signs the letter A-K-I-A. So do you know do you know what that means? No. Um, AKIA is Klansman code for a Klansman I am. Um, oh. So the implication is that Joe Keen Sr. and Sheriff Crawford were in the Klan together. Um, oh. So you put that together with the Klan robe that Angela found in Judd's study, and and there's a lot we can infer from that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that Judd and Joe Jr. are also Klansmen? I'm not sure. But it's not hard to like believe that apples don't fall far from the tree, right? Mm-hmm. And this puts like a whole new spin on Joe Keen Jr.'s mass cop initiative. So like if you don't read these PDPedia files, you're not really I mean, you still get the gist of what's going on, but like mm-hmm. this adds so much color to what's going on. Like yeah. Amir talked about this last episode, like in both the world of Watchmen and our world, it's not inconceivable that there's at least some white supremacy infiltration within our law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And like in this world, you couple that with a nationwide, like institution of masked cops with like zero accountability, then like you can really see how this is going to be a huge problem. And like, if that's what Joe jr is going for, then this could be like a whole new kind of uh, covert race war kind of thing. Where yeah. Like mass cops everywhere. And like some of them are racist and like, it's just that might be part of the conspiracy. Who knows, right? So, yeah, and then it begs it begs you to now think about you know if it implies that the you know Joe Senior was part of the 
the clan and and he enacted the you know the keen act like what was he doing right to, right. to try to stop vigilantes from um existing so it really right, right. Yeah, like you said it colors this world it really adds this depth to it and makes you yeah. think but again i think I, <laughs> we said it before if you don't want to read the pdpedia files we'll try our best to cover as much as we can and yeah. give you as much uh, what we think is relevant or what we think is interesting from those yeah a little extra reading will never kill you so <laughs> yeah um, but uh it, what's also interesting files. is that i think um uh, the PDP files say that he, you know, he's running for president, but we, now we learn it here in the show. So it, like I said, it, we learned it first, probably in the PDP files, but I think if it's relevant for the show, the show will tell you, you right. we, we learned that he's running for president and that uh, he has that really great line where he says, you know, you know, as a president, I can pardon whoever I want. You know, I can even get your owl of owl out of that cage. Right. Uh -huh. So that's our hint that maybe Dan is, is locked up and serving, serving time, for what we don't know yet, but you know, um, mm -hmm. if he does become um, president, maybe he can he can be free. Yeah, do something, yeah, about getting uh, Dan out of prison. Um, yeah. I don't want to spend too much more time on this scene because there's a lot more to cover. But this scene also had like one of my favorite shots. Oh, you're gonna take my. You're gonna episode. take. You're gonna take. Oh, I'm gonna take. Okay, no, 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 go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 you, you should go. It. No, you should. No, you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So like they had this one shot where. Um, there's a there's a Warhol painting mm -hmm. on the wall of Lori's apartment where it's it's Night, Night Owl, Owl Ozymandias, Ozymandias Doctor Manhattan, Manhattan and mm -hmm. then the fourth panel is uh, Lori herself. But mm -hmm. the angle at which they shoot it, her present self like is obscuring the the fourth panel, which yeah. is uh, it's basically like her version. head fits perfectly yeah. where that image should be so it's like basically is framing her and it's it's her image and then we see it you know yeah. the camera moves and it's it's a younger image of her so yeah. yeah i thought yeah again that's that's probably my favorite shot of the, the episode too all right sorry sorry to steal your thunder no no <laughs> i was like man we're on the same way i knew it i knew it one same, of us, same, same one of us is going to talk about this scene because that that was a really cool shot um also also a little shout out to the movie right because warhol did a little cameo mm -hmm. in the beginning mm -hmm. where he's yep painting the the night owl portrait in the beginning yeah so uh we're, we'll move into the next scene it, it's uh laurie's driving and i guess he's driving to the fbi office and again the the framing device of the joke comes back and she basically says you know forget about the break let me let me tell you a new joke uh she starts this joke about three heroes that died and they're at the pearly white gates waiting to be judged by god either they're going to go to heaven or they're going to go to hell and you know she describes this first hero as someone who dresses like an owl who has inventions and all that so she's clearly describing night owl um, dan driver's uh -huh. character there's a couple questions that god has like oh how many people have you killed and his answer is like well i haven't killed anyone and right. um basically the end result god sends him to hell yeah he's uh, he's like oh you're you're too soft yeah um, oh yeah you're too so soft you're but it's interesting because, you know, we're jumping ahead a little bit. But as she describes each of these heroes, I feel like she actually has a little bit of disdain for each of these heroes, right? Especially right. Ozymandias and, and Dr. Manhattan. But to kind of hear how she was kind of uh, describing Dan was interesting because, you know, last we saw her in the comics, I mean, they were married. They were going to go run away with each other. You know, it's interesting to, to speculate what happened that their relationship kind of maybe broke down. Lori's a character that has a lot of trauma, whether it's mm -hmm. her mother's sexual assaults, 
how her mother treats her, the revelation that the comedian is her father, and then this massive, massive secret that her uh, night owl and Dr. Manhattan has. I mean, Dr. Manhattan doesn't care. He, he has zero emotions, mm-hmm. but yep. the, the, the weight of that um, secret that they have to keep that Ozymandias manufactured this world peace by basically killing three million people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that takes a toll on a relationship or a marriage or there's a lot going on with Lori that I think she's trying to process still. So yeah, even after 30 years, right? Right. So yeah, uh, she walks into this office building. What's interesting. She walks this elevator full of men and they all instantly like back away, like give her more space. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know if it's fear, if it's respect or I don't know what, you know, it, I, maybe a little bit of both. But I thought I found that a little bit funny. I I love this episode because I was laughing like throughout this whole. Episode. Oh, I was laughing so hard at yeah. some of the things that Laurie was saying. It's just um, and the way that like Jean Smart delivers those lines is mm-hmm. is just so funny. I yeah, uh, I, I love mm-hmm. that almost kind of. I mean, it's still very much in the tone of the first two episodes, but now it just uh-huh. has it's, it's imbued with so much more comedy in this episode, which is really yeah. great. Kind of refreshing just for like the third episode in, right? Yeah, and her like brand of humor is like right up my alley too. It's like oh yeah, me too. Yeah, deadpan, like super mean and uh, witty. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's uh, I I really enjoyed that. So so um, yeah, she walks into the middle of a briefing, which is always right. funny to me when I watch like TV shows and and like someone walks in the middle. It's like you're not on time. Like you couldn't get here on time when everybody else could. Right, right, right. <laughs> but she yeah, she walks into the middle of this briefing. And we're, we're learning a lot of things that we've already kind of been told, right? You know, um, uh, Judd has you know, been murdered, um, hanged, and it's by these people speculate that it's by these individuals that were that were masked. You know, the guy who's kind of running the show basically calls the 7th K, you know, the clan with different masks. Uh, and then we see a screenshot of um, Rorschach's journal come up. And then an excerpt from Rorschach's journal. And then the man's like, why is this on the screen? Like, who put this on here? And then we learn it's the man who's running the projector is a man he refers to as Petey. Yeah, Agent, so, Agent Dale Petey. A Dale Petey. So, uh, author of uh, the Petey <laughs> Files. I did not know that he was actually going to be like a presence on this show. That was I, I was going to say that. That's exactly what i was gonna say this was probably the most surprising thing to me because i uh-huh. fully expected this pdp thing to be this kind of side thing and we'll never get to meet pd you know they'll never show pd yeah. but then to have him on the show i was like oh that was really cool yeah but yeah. like it's still supplemental right he just happens to be a character well he's the, with on the you show know, yeah he's with you know Lori now so like i wonder if he's gonna be in it for pretty much yeah, yeah. A couple more episodes or the remainder of the season. Yeah. Um, uh, then we see um, slides come up of you know Judd's image, and it looks like his information about him, his social security number, and and where he went to college and all that. And I, I couldn't discern anything really interesting from that. But uh, the next one is actually of uh, Angela Abars, and right. the the FBI know that she is Sister Knight. Like if you if you you know freeze the screen it says like known aliases is sister night on her profile right yeah so like they know already like the fbi already know and then you know after the debrief the 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 captain or the the person in charge is basically like hey everyone you guys are all going to go to oklahoma tulsa or tulsa oklahoma and then um uh she basically says no i want to go by myself 
because you know she thinks it's better if she she works alone kind of the whole stereotype you know typical, yeah she, she's like if, trope if we rain down a an army of suits on uh tulsa we're not going to get anything from yeah you know, this investigation so but he tells her like alone. Yeah. well he tells her that you have to take somebody and then she yeah. chooses to take pd yeah so you know now he's he's part of the story which is awesome i thought you know right. he was only going to be in that scene now he's actually going to be in more <laughs> scenes so this, is even, um, this is getting even better yeah there's <laughs> there's also a big uh easter egg or reference in this uh, scene where they pull up uh, Rorschach's journal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like in the big red cover, and and the t- the typeface on the on the journal. It's it's a clear reference to uh, the Turner Diaries. I don't know if you're oh. familiar with the no, Turner please. Diaries. Please um, uh, describe. So it's the Turner Diaries is a 1978 novel. And it depicts like a violent revolution in the U.S., which leads to the overthrow of the government, um, nuclear war, and then most importantly, like a a race war, um, which mm. is like uh, advocating the extermination of non-whites. So um, this was like a super racist and like anti-Semitic work, and it has pretty much become like a white nationalism handbook um Hmm. so like for the clan and then like the alt-right and stuff they this is like one of their i guess you could say bibles or whatever so manifestos um, or something yeah manifesto so like this the way that uh the cover is laid out and then like the the typeface and and all that is a is a clear shout out to to that at least at least in my opinion that's instantly what i thought of when i saw that that red cover so nice nice good reference yeah. all right uh, we'll move on to our next scene so uh next scene is as Lori and pd are on a plane i guess on their way to tulsa and uh laurie's kind of sleeping she's got one of those like uh, eye mask on and then yeah, uh, yeah. she kind of wakes up and pd's like i got my own and it, it's basically like a superhero mask like he's kind it's of like a dom- domino mask or whatever. yeah yeah and uh uh she says well you're an fbi agent <laughs> not the fucking lone ranger and right. which is kind of referenced back to what you said in the first episode about yeah, Bass with, Reeves, uh, right? Bass Reeves, right? Yeah, that um, he he's kind of the inspiration for the Ranger. So that was a really cool tie-in for that. The pilot over the PA system says, uh, "If you look out your windows, you'll see the Millennium Clock." So um, we look out, and it looks like this you know giant tower, and I'm not too sure what it's doing. I don't know why it's called the Millennium Clock, but you know it's this kind of like really tall structure. And uh, uh, Dale Petey quotes this line, uh, look on my work, ye mighty might despair. And he says that that's what Lady True said for the opening of that the, uh, Millennium Clock. So this is the second time we've heard this true name, right? Um, where the first, again, we remind you, it was um, the first scene with the, the array, right? The one that's calling Mars. The quote um, that she says, look on my mm-hmm. work, ye mighty and despair. That is a reference to uh, Percy Shelley's poem *Ozymandias*. Um, ah. Yeah, so so it's basically about a king who's ruling over like a ruined land. So I think the most famous words of that poem is "My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair." Mm. Um, yeah, so like nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, 
the lone and level sands stretch far away. So it's like a clear uh, reference to Ozymandias, obviously, Adrian Veidt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And then uh, he he mentions something about, you know, having a buddy in Argentina. And and that buddy says that Veidt, you know, got plastic surgery and he's not actually dead. And this kind of goes back to one of his Pediapedia files, right, where he kind of says he doesn't believe that Veidt is dead. Um, that you know, it's it was a mistake to pronounce him as deceased. So that kind of goes back to his assumptions that um, Vite is not dead. Uh, and then she kind of like snarkily kind of asks, like, "Do you want an autograph?" Kind of like, "Oh, this guy must just be a fan. He knows who I am. Let me just give him an autograph, and then he'll go away." And then he kind of snaps back, right? He, he yeah, says I didn't he, expect that. That like really yeah. subverted my expectations yeah. for this this type of character so like you know he, he he's says just like a fanboy or whatever yeah he actually makes a pretty good comeback and like puts yeah. Lori in her place which yeah which is very interesting yeah um, he says that he wrote his graduate thesis on the police strike of 77 so if you remember from our last episode me and amir kind of talked about this right because i i, I talked about how their raid on nixonville kind of reminded me of that right. of that you know incident in the comic and amir of course you know, with his knowledge was able to callback you know that the, that was the strike that he's kind of talking about right or the one he right. refers to as writing his graduate thesis on and then he does say that yeah i do know who you are i know who your ex is right dr manhattan and that before he was in the fbi he you know he had a phd in history so we're learning a lot more about this character too and and he's got some balls on him right, <laughs> to, right. to kind of stand yeah. up to to laurie's uh, character but then she does say that, that line that she is not a fan of Vite. So, mm-hmm. uh, of course, that's, you know, a, a callback to the comics because she knows exactly what he did. She's definitely part of this cast of heroes that have to keep the secret, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's I, I really like this scene just because we get to learn a little bit more about the world. But we get to really learn a lot about Petey, which I, I thought was really great. Yeah, he's he's a nice little supporting character who who's also writing all this cool supplemental material. So it's nice for to us have to read, the, for everyone to read the show. <laughs> um, does she continue her joke here with with Ozymandias? I don't recall where that was, but she continues her joke of the three heroes being judged, mm-hmm. right? And the second yes. one, she's obviously describing Ozymandias. So. In the first mm-hmm. one, it was Night Owl. He got sent mm-hmm. to hell for being too soft. And then God asks Ozymandias the same the same question. How many people did you kill? Uh, and he goes like, oh, I killed three million people. And then... Give or take. <laughs> give or take. And then God God sends him to hell, too. He's like, oh, you're a monster. Or mm-hmm. whatever. So this, this is like your two extremes. Um, and just a continuation of that joke. Yeah, there was a line in there. It says, uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking a couple legs. Now, that's right. a very cliche line. You know, you've heard a lot of movies. Yeah. I couldn't remember. Is there, is that line ever said in the comics? I, I just I felt think... like it was, but I couldn't find it. So, like, I didn't want to. I yeah. don't think, I don't know. It was... it's, it's very cliche. Time, line. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, a very cliche yeah, yeah. line. So, I can't remember yeah. if, I, if, it, if I've seen it in the comics or if I've just, like, heard it everywhere in, like, all the movies. Uh, yeah. But so this this scene, you know, you know, like we said, the framing device is that she kind of tells this joke over other scenes. Uh, this yeah. scene is she's back at the scene of the hanging. Uh-huh. And so she's kind of doing her own investigation. And she, you know, at the tree and she notices wheelchair tracks. Right. Has PD uh-huh. take a picture of it. 
the scene kind of moves on and then she she goes to judd's house and is greeted by his wife um, which this plot point will come back later in the story and then she goes to the warehouse right where they do the investigations where in the first episode we saw them take that guy into the pod Mm-hmm. And and this time around, it's not just one guy. There's just they're rounding it's up a whole yeah. It's a whole anybody, anybody and everybody they they might suspect. This is a hard time for them. They want to find out who killed their their captain or their chief. Right. Uh, but before we go into the actual uh, warehouse, he, she has this kind of scene with uh, uh, Red <laughs> a Scare, pretty, a Red pretty Scare. funny uh, yeah. encounter with Pirate Jenny and Red Scare. So yeah, and this um, is the first time we actually get to know Pirate Jenny's name, right? I think this is the first time we... Does anyone do, actually do say, say her name? I don't think anyone says her name. She's still just Pirate Jenny, I think. Oh, no, uh, no. As in, like, I, I think... Remember in the first oh, episode... Oh, oh, yeah. No one actually... We, yeah, we, we yeah, only yeah. knew her name was Pirate Jenny because from the, the, from subtitles, the subtitles actually said yeah. her name was Pirate Jenny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think this is yeah. the first time we actually know that her name is Pirate Jenny. Yeah. She's like, who the, who the fuck are you? When, yeah, uh, like, yeah. when Laurie walks up um, and Laurie's like, I'm... I'm Agent Laurie Blake. Who the fuck are you? Yeah. And then, um, the other and then they're, yeah, they're like rounding here. up one guy. Um, they're like really rough, oh, yeah. roughing him up. And <laughs> Laurie, she's like, are they infringing on your rights? And then uh, the guy, he's like blindfolded and zip tied. He's like, yeah, they really messed me up. Like they came into my house and like. It's like, I, I don't fucking and, care. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, I was just kidding. I don't really care, which is, which is pretty funny. Yeah. A um, great piece of comedy. Yeah. So we go inside, and Laurie herself is looking for uh, looking glass. Uh-huh. Uh, so he comes out of the pod, and and the guy he I guess it was interrogating then was was clean because he he basically says you know let him go, scratch him off the list. Yeah. So like they, it it tells you that they're just rounding up anybody that they think might have done this, and are just mm-hmm. testing them. It's uh, definitely not maybe the correct due process for this. Right. <laughs> to find to find who killed Crawford. Mm-hmm. And um, so she kind of goes in the, the pod with him and she has that really funny line like, oh, I know I'm skipping the line, but can I go next? <laughs> yeah. Like it's some kind of like, a, amusement, right? <laughs> like this whole scene, she's just giving him a hard time, right? Oh, like yeah. Busting his balls like crazy. Well, I love yeah. the contrast of this scene and then the scene we get later with Angela. Like, you know, she uh-huh. definitely successfully intimidates, I think, Looking Glass, you know, Tim Blake Nelson's character. But later we see the contrast where you know she tries to get under Angela's skin and it doesn't work, which yeah, I love. Yeah. But well, yeah. let, let's let's stick onto the scene first. So she goes inside and you know she <laughs> she she grabs the remote to the pod and then starts. She's like, "Ooh, what's this?" Or, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, he he describes it as it determines and exposes negative cultural biases, and she basically uh, she calls so, calls it. Oh, so it's a racist detective, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, which was really funny. Very, and, very um, blunt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very, very blunt. Just like her dad, right? Yeah. Yeah, which I love. And then she she does the same mirror trick that Judd does in the first episode where she kind of uses his mask like a mirror, which I thought was yeah. like, kind of almost a nod to the, you know, first episode. Yeah. But she's like she's like word of advice when your face is a mirror, people are going <laughs> to Yeah, this people are going to do this. So don't, don't be offended. Yeah. yeah. She's like I think and, I got like a a seed in my teeth or something. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, she was eating sunflower seeds in the car. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. We learned that she knows exactly who he is, right? She calls him first Wade, Uh or would you prefer Detective Tillman? So Uh she knows exactly who he is. So she's she's playing with all the cards. She's playing with a full deck, yeah. Yeah, she's playing with, you know, a full deck. And what's interesting is the, the image that comes up on the screen on the pods is the giant squid. 
So this was the the same image we saw in the first episode when he's doing the interrogation and there's an image of a giant squid. This is the exact same image, but this time it's just kind of left there. So like, there's no doubt this is, you know, the squid that was probably dropped on New York. And then she asked him about Judd and he says that, you know, it's clearly he died of, you know, the hanging. And she asks, oh, was there a talk screen done? And he, he says, no. I, I think that's probably something that's going to come back in the future uh, in, in one way or another. And then she asks about the cattle ranch raid. She's basically asking all these questions that she already knows the answers to. And he he knows that she knows the answers to, right? So, like, he's not as dumb as she probably thinks he is. But at the same time, she is definitely trying to outsmart this guy. And I think she does definitely win this battle against him. And she also, you know, lets on that she knows who Angela is, that, you know, she's she knows that she's Sister Knight and basically has LG confirm it to her. Yeah, and she knows about their little uh, extrajudicial interrogation technique that resulted in the in the cattle ranch assault, right? She's like, oh, you mean like she beat the shit out of him? Um, yeah. <laughs> And the last thing we kind of learned from the scene is that Angela is currently not there because she is trying to write, you know, a eulogy for the funeral that's going to be happening in a couple hours. Uh, so we'll move on to the next scene. And so the, the framing device of the joke comes back again, and she's continuing her joke. And she talks about the third hero, who she describes as a god himself. Uh, she calls him the blue god. So this is definitely Dr. Manhattan, who she's describing. Right, he says he's blue and he likes to stroll around with his dick hanging out, which is such a great line. She describes his powers like he could teleport, see into the future, blow shit up. She describes a lot of the things that he does in the comics, and then you know, God asks like, "Oh, you know, how many people have you killed?" and and he says, "Oh, well, live bodies and dead bodies have the same amount of particles, so it doesn't matter," which is a very, very Doctor Manhattan right. line. Um, one of his like and, lines that shows how far removed he is from uh, humanity, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he says, uh, you know, I already know I'm going to hell. And I think God asks, you know, what, how do you know that? And he says, because I'm already there, which is very much another Dr. Manhattan thing. And, you know, we described in our, our, our prologue episodes that he's a character that basically exists in all time. So he sees his past, his present, and his future at all times. So it's very much a, a Dr. Manhattan thing. Out of the three descriptions that she, you know, she goes through, this is kind of my favorite, just because of the way, you know, it's written. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think it really encompasses her understanding of that character, right? Especially because she was very intimate with that character, yeah, too, right? Yeah. You know, ex-boyfriend and everything. Yeah, like yeah. you forget in the scope of this series that she had a personal and intimate relationship with with this character that everyone else sees as pretty much God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people who've read the comics will get that a little more, but, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, again, she, you know, she's telling this joke over the scene where we see her and PD check into a hotel. And then this is a, a big Easter egg. Wasn't the hotel or the motel called the, yeah, the, the black the black freighter in or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 So that's a definitely a nod to the tales from the black freighter is the comic within a comic. Uh, and then we see this briefcase again, right? She opens like a larger briefcase, pulls some clothes away. And then we see this, you know, silver briefcase that we saw at the beginning of the episode. 
Uh, she gets ready for the funeral. She, you know, she puts on some black clothes and she also puts on an ankle holster. Uh, the next scene, we kind of we go in and both her and PD are checking into a funeral, and and the guards are like, "Well, you're gonna have to check in your weapons." Dale basically tries to stop them from doing that, but she says, "You know, don't be disrespectful." And she easily hands over her gun. And we see the 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 mechanism again where they put the gun in this uh, locking mechanism, right? Right. right. The, what we what we saw in the very first episode. Uh, and then before the funeral actually takes place, Lori introduces herself to Angela, and and this is kind of the first standoff that they have. And if you've seen any of the commercials or the the trailers for the show, she says that exact same line. She kind of says, you know, you know, what's the difference between a mask cop and a vigilante? Angela is like, um, I don't know. And she's like, it's like, like, I don't know. Me neither. Like, <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yeah. yeah, which I thought was a little great bit of comedy and kind of like, um, it, it tells you a lot about what she thinks about. Right, exactly. Um, um, and it's ironic mass, because she she used to be one of them. She used to be right? one, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. so it, it tells you a lot more. I mean, just the writing itself tells you a lot about what this character's mentality mm-hmm. is, which is really great. And like, she's trying to like embarrass Angela in front of her family mm-hmm. too. It's like, oh, that's like a dangerous profession, like uh, mm-hmm. the profession that you retired from. Because she knows that she's not retired, right? So she's like, mm-hmm. and her family knows she's not retired either. I mean, her kids might, but Cal definitely knows that. He, knows, yeah. He, she's still active duty. So like, well, that's mm-hmm. like a little jab to get under his skin um, in front of Angela, right? So Lori is very good at the, the verbal warfare, you know? Um, yes, yes. Getting under people's skins, just knowing the exact words to say to like elicit a an emotional response right um yes yes yeah so you know the the funeral starts and judd's wife asks angela to speak she describes you know having a conversation with judd and saying that you know if if i ever died you know i told him what i would want and, and he ever died he told her what he he would want her to say she goes ahead and pulls out what i guess lyrics to a song and starts singing yeah. Um, do you recognize the song? I don't. It's called "The Last Roundup," I believe. So I guess it's like a, it's like a nod to being a cop, I guess, to to round up the the suspects or or something. I'm not I'm not particularly familiar with the song, but it seems like a fitting eulogy for Judd. And then uh, as she's singing, we kind of see this now. Seven uh, K member looks like he's crawling in some kind of hole, right? And he comes out of this hole that's. I guess been dug out into a nearby crypt. Yeah, in the cemetery where and, they're having the funeral for. Yeah, the where they're having the funeral, and this is where the vest comes in. Where we saw last week, it looks like you know seven K members are creating some kind of bomb. Right. So this is like uh, the, the payoff for. Payoff for that. for that. Yeah. He puts it on, and he's got the trigger, and he walks out, and basically demands that Joe Keen come with him. Mm-hmm. And then he's about to take him away, and then all of a sudden he gets his head blown off. Yeah, Laurie shoots him in the head with the, uh, yeah, with her, which which I'm assuming is the holster yeah, that we with saw her uh, Chekhov's ankle gun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, before he got shot, he he says like it's connected to my heartbeat, so if my heartbeat stops, he'll arm the bomb, and the bomb will go off. Right, right, right. Um, uh, which, and he calls uh, uh, you know, he calls Senator Keen a race traitor, and he's like, mm-hmm, "You're mm-hmm. coming with me." So that's what happens before. Uh, Laurie shoots him dead. Yeah. And then when he shoots him dead, we hear the beeping. Basically implies that the bomb is going to go off soon. So, you know, Angela takes action. She starts to drag this dead body into the ditch or the, the coffin's going to go into yeah, where, the grave. Where, the, Judd's, the coffin's where Judd's coffin is going to go. But, and then to, to cover the blast, she basically pushes Judd's 
coffin, I'm assuming with his dead body in right. it, into the grave to kind of cover the blast. And it does explode and it uh, looks like no one gets hurt. Yeah, poor uh, poor Judd can't catch a break here. Uh, another thing I forgot to mention, a, ni- a nice kind of little thing they did with the scene is that when they introduced the the 7K member, you hear a, a TikTok right, right, start right, playing, right. which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, we, we hear... I remember the first episode, wasn't it? Like, you know, Judd and Angela were talking. We kept hearing the ticking. Yeah, and then noise. Judd even says, uh, tick tock, tick tock. Tick tock, tick tock. It's just like, man, maybe these are just clues little, that. Little motif. There. Maybe he was part of the 7K. Maybe, you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, and me and Amir kind of talked about it, right? Like, there's something very weird of the way he described Angela's incident after she woke up from the white right, night. Exactly. So it's like. There's definitely some some clues here, and we'll see if it pans out the um, way maybe we think. It also, will. from the same Pedipedia article talking about Joe Keen Senior and uh, Judd Crawford's father being Klansman, if you read that like I did, if you go back to the scene, you instantly recall Ozymandias's assassination plot, right? That's what that's what occurred mm. to me with with Joe Keen Junior at this funeral where there's like a, a false flag i mean we don't know for sure but yeah I, I really got that vibe where this might have been orchestrated by joe keen jr himself yeah yeah so that's that's the vibe because I got. to describe what jeff's talking about in the comics um to throw people off of his scent of adrian's scent he purposely sends someone to try to kill him right 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 okay and sorry yeah he, yeah he thwarts, yeah he, he thwarts it and he kills that guy, but it was to kind of throw Rorschach off his scent and throw anybody off his scent that might think that um, he's behind this plot. Right. So that's what Jeff's alluding to. And, you know, we kind of think that this this could be another kind of red herring, right? Where it looks like he's trying to take Joaquin away, right? right? And maybe do something horrible to him. But, you know, maybe it's all part of his plan to boost his ratings or, you know what I mean? Like, especially after this incident, we see that his his public presence is a little bit higher because he has that interview later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that one later. Yeah. I mean, it is a Damon Lindelof show, so it could still be a red herring. You never know. Um, yeah. It is a little yeah. obvious that Joaquin Jr. So, so shady and yeah. this Pedia article doesn't really paint him in the most positive light. So I don't know. It could mm-hmm. be a misdirect. Who knows? The next scene is uh, our our weekly episode, our weekly, our weekly jaunt yeah. into Jeremy Irons <laughs> the Jeremy, Jeremy Irons world. Yeah, uh, last week me and Amir talked about. Well, we don't know who he he's playing. In. So I guess and now I think I guess now can... my theory is uh, is dead <laughs> dead in the water too. I guess um, you never know. You yeah. never know. You never know. But okay, so this is our our, our Jeremy. I'm gonna call it our Jeremy Irons visit, and and uh, it starts off by we see this bust of like like a head, and it has a purple mask on it. So that's definitely another hint that this he's Ozymandias, right? Adrian Veidt. Um and, and you know, as we kind of move through his little, I don't know what you want to call it, like workshop, we see like blueprints all over the ground. We see this model of what looks like a trebuchet. Yeah, right? it's a like model a, of a trebuchet. Yeah. Uh, and then and we clearly see him. He looks like he's designing some kind of suit. And uh, later, you know, as he later, it cuts to him and, and Mr. Phillips in, in the middle of some kind of field. And um, he puts the suit on uh, Mr. Phillips. And he asks, like, oh, are you ready to venture into the great beyond? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, we see this great kind of scene where it's like really close up on Mr. Phillips's face. And, and yeah, he I looks think, like he's you know, all ready to go on this this little journey. And then uh, oh, it's great, but like because the actor's like he looks like he's ready to go, but then you can see the small little facial ticks. It yeah. looks like he's super nervous too, and I would be too if I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. And it cuts to the scene where you basically see the same face, but he's dead and he's frozen. What What do you think that's about? So I think. I mean, I'm not sure, right? It's hard to it's hard to say, but because we don't see what actually happens to him, but yeah, I I want to say that just because it cut to the the model of the trebuchet that Ozymandias or or Jeremy Irons, whatever you want to call him, he's launching his clone into space. Obviously, it doesn't work out. He he dies from exposure. Um, so. I mean, he obviously makes it into the the atmosphere, right? The upper atmosphere. Um, so that's why he freezes to death. But we don't get much more to, to go on than that. Well, part of something he does, he ties a rope around him. Yeah. It's almost, and that always reminds me of someone going somewhere and then another person wanting to pull, pull back them back. And come back, yeah. So what we know from the comics also is that he does have the technology to teleport someone, right? Uh, or teleport as Ozymandias. yeah yeah right because doesn't he teleport the the squid into new york but i don't think he has any access to like the modern technology his, yeah right? what, what we learn about yeah. yeah what we learn about his situation maybe he doesn't have that technology but i mean I, i'm just kind of drawing from the comics as much as i can yeah. and, and like I, I the trebuchet yes could be it but then why does he have to tie him to something right like i don't know it almost implies like maybe he goes through some kind of like i imagine maybe it's like in my science fiction head he goes through like a portal and then he needs to pull him back yeah maybe right um so like that's just kind of where my mind goes yeah and uh, um, but what i guess we'll hopefully learn yeah so eventually. clearly it doesn't work out and then uh yeah jeremy iron's character he's he's really upset he's like yeah he's like he's, like he's getting really upset yeah he's like stomping on the mr phillips yeah he's like just corpse. trying to like yeah. break this guy and <laughs> break him and then we see another mr phillips come and he asks you know what went wrong and, and jeremy irons says you know i think we're going to need a thicker skin so this cuts into a scene where he i guess he's riding a horse and this is the 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 scene uh we saw in the trailers where he's riding a horse and he passes this flag right what looks like a pirate flag right um, right yeah you instantly then, recall uh the black freighter right black freighter and then he goes into this kind of um not not a canyon but uh it's like a valley it's like a field with valley all these, thank you uh, thank you these buffalo buffalo or bison i don't know, I yeah. know exactly which one it is and he, he pulls out a bone arrow and he shoots one right in the head and it's dead and as he approaches it to try to i'm, I'm guessing to skin it right because he says he needs thicker skin uh someone fires a shot at his feet yeah and we see that it's it's this mysterious figure on a horse and he's wearing a mask mm-hmm. so we don't know who he is exactly uh we find out later uh, i'm guessing this is the person he refers to as the game warden mm-hmm. So he goes back home and he, he seems quite upset and he's being greeted by Crookshanks and Mr. Phillips in the hall and they're doing the whole bit again where they're, the they're birthday, doing the singing. The, the cake. Yeah. The cake. Um, and this is something, you know, I didn't quite notice the first two episodes and it's something that I've, I've read and heard other podcasts talk about. And so I finally noticed it. This cake has three candles on it. Right. The first cake had one. The second cake had two. And now this one has three. Or the second, that's yeah. three. 
So it, it definitely implies that there's something going on time-wise, right? right? That's they're, very they're different place, than like, the story. Yeah, each each of these little uh, vignettes are taking place like a year apart from each other, or something like that. Yes. You know? So um, he grabs the cake and just slams it on the ground. He's like, I, I can't deal with this crap right now. Yeah. <laughs> and the next scene, we see him kind of meditating on, on the table, which is very much a Dr. Manhattan thing. Yeah. So that's like, and again, it's very confusing. Right. Uh, and, and then Kirkshank comes in. It's like, oh, you have a letter from the game warden. This is where we get the first mention of his adversary called the game warden. And the interesting thing about the letter, it says a couple different interesting things. Um, it uses the phrase terms of your captivity, uh-huh. which is interesting to me because he's basically being held in a prison, right? Or he's right. in uh, what I call a luxurious house arrest, <laughs> right? Uh, so that, that was a really interesting thing that you kind of find out about his situation. Mm-hmm. And then she, he also, the person in the letter mentions like, oh, thank you for the delicious tomatoes. And that's the tomato that we probably saw in the last episode. Yeah, that grows on a tree instead uh, of a vine. That grows on a tree instead of a vine. And then um, he asks Crookshanks, okay, we're going to do our own verbal battle here, right? You know, uh, Gene Smart's character is doing verbal battle throughout this whole episode. And then this is uh, Adrian Bites. Uh, opportunity to do that so he directs her to start kind of write this letter back to the game warden Uh, i love the way he describes his activities as purely recreational in nature and then he has that kind of like wink in his eye like he he knows he's trying something right it's it's our hint that he's he's this is not just for fun he's doing something and he's trying to do something he's got something up his sleeve yeah Mm -hmm. and then he signs off his letter at the end as adrian Vite. So this is our confirmation that Jeremy Irons is playing Adrian Veidt. Um So this completely goes against my <laughs> my theory that he's not actually Adrian Veidt. He's uh, Dr. Manhattan. This is a theory I mentioned in, in uh, episode that, one. Uh, for episode one. But I'm glad this isn't true because I think yeah, Jeremy I Irons said that. is a perfect Ozymandias uh, slash mm-hmm. Adrian Veidt. And I'm glad that he actually gets to play the character that we thought he was playing. So yep. you go into a shot where he's basically in his room and he puts on his old outfit, uh, his old costume, his old Osmanis costume. And it's, it's very representational of what it looked like. Yeah. In the, it's the like comics, the, which was really great. The gold armor, the plating. And yeah. And it's got the, the purple dot. The hoop mask. ring. Yeah. Yeah. And the hoop ring at the top. Yeah. So it's very much exactly what it looked like in the comics, which right. was really, really cool. So I yeah. think the implication here is that Dr. Manhattan is the game warden, right? Um, oh. I mean, it's not for sure, obviously. You never know with these things. But I think that's the feeling that I got, that Dr. Manhattan is, is the game warden. And he has created this possibly like a biosphere on Mars where he keeps Ozymandias in captivity. Mm-hmm. But so that's the idea of like using the trebuchet and then once yeah. they, he breaks the he breaks out, it's basically space and so that's why he freezes. Right. Oh, but okay. that also doesn't exactly jive either, right? So like if Dr. Manhattan has Ozymandias in in captivity, why would he give him any of these means? All these servants I don't know if he gives him like the cloning technology to create like these uh, Crookshanks and Mister Phillips clones, but if they even are clones, it seems like they are. But 
why would Dr. Manhattan give him the means to, to use all these tools, you know? So there's a lot we're not being told here. So we'll see. So uh, we'll get to uh, our next scene. And this is, it goes back to the cemetery and the press are interviewing Senator Keene, asking about the incident. And the most interesting thing I got from that was there is one reporter that basically says the Russians are building their own intrinsic field generator. Right. So that is a reference to the comics Mm -hmm. about the birth of Dr. Manhattan. And the intrinsic field generator is the device that creates him. So I guess the Russians are trying to create their own Dr. Manhattan. And what's what's really interesting is that um, Dr. Manhattan is basically in the comics. He's called Superman, right? Don't they say the Superman is real? And he's American, right? And this is really interesting because in DC Comics, there's a, a like a what if storyline where what if Superman didn't land in America? He landed in Russia, wasn't it? Yeah. And he becomes... Yeah, uh, Red Sun by Mark Millar. One of my favorite comic books of all time by the way um if you haven't read it go go read that it's it's fantastic so i don't know if it, that's kind of a nod to that but i that's kind of one of the first places my mind went to when when they said that i think one of the things where my mind went to is a lot of superhero comics have superheroes whose powers are like caused by accidents and then other people mm-hmm. try and like recreate them and they always fail miserably mm-hmm. the flash is created by like a mix of chemicals and like a lightning bolt. And I'm sure like other people have tried to like recreate that only to wrecked by the re- lightning bolt or whatever. And then like another example is Captain America and like the super soldier serum, right? Like other people try and take it, but like that it turned into like the ab- abomination or like the red skull or whatever. So yeah, that's the feeling that I got from this. I don't know if that, that's just like a really fun nod to the comics or if, they're going to take that idea somewhere else. Cause yeah, that maybe, is, maybe. That would be very interesting if we saw that the Russians actually created their own Superman. So the gist of this scene is it takes place back at that crypt. Lori basically steals Petey's coffee and then walks back to that crypt where she meets. And this is the, the verbal converse, confrontation that she's going to have with Angela Eightbar's character. Uh, and then Angela, when we first see her coming out of that hole, she's wearing those night owl goggles again, which is really cool. Like I said, it reminds me a lot of the, the scene that she had with LG earlier, uh, where she she's basically incrementally kind of giving all this information that she knows that she knows about Angela. You know, she gives her the information about the wheelchair tracks. She t- she says that she went to uh, Judd's house and looked at and found his secret compartment where she found something. And I love that line where she's like, yeah, my, you know, my dad was murdered and they found a secret compartment in his, in his closet. So I, I, it's just something I do now. Yeah. And, and then she tells Lori what she found was a naked bust. And, but then she also implies that, you know, I know that, you know, and I'm, you know, basically I, I, I'm pretty sure you took something from there. So it, it's a lot of, We've been describing this whole episode, kind of this verbal battle between the two. And I, I love uh, Regina King's reaction to everything afterwards. And she's kind of, she does like that, that, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, scary. Yeah. Lori, she says, like, men who are hung with secret closets, they tend to think they're good guys. And those who protect them think they're good guys. And then she, she ends on, I eat good guys for breakfast or whatever. Um, and that's what. That's what prompts Angela to go like, ooh, I'm so scared, you know? 
And then she she like takes the coffee and then pours it out into the hole. Yeah, yeah. My first thought was like, aren't you contaminating the crime scene? <laughs> but whatever. Let's suspend that. Distance. Let's just not do that logic. But yeah, I thought that was really funny. I just really love this dynamic between them. And it's one that mm-hmm. you don't really see that often on TV or like premium TV. It's just some verbal sparring between two women both over 40 right and yeah and it's just a refreshing dynamic to see i thought it was just great and damon lindelof and leela Bayok, they're just very good at creating tense and uncomfortable scenes that are centered around dialogue and there's a lot of comic book stuff in this but a lot of the times it's just two people talking and some of those scenes are like the most powerful in the series you know so and then uh we end this scene with a very cool shot too of we get to see kind of Lori's face framed by one of the the lenses of the goggle yeah which I, I thought yeah. that was a really cool visual uh we'll move into our uh, very last scene of this uh episode and basically uh, Lori kind of continues her joke and she says that god after you know sentencing these three heroes to hell finally notices a, a woman and God embarrassingly kind of admits, like, I'm sorry, I, I don't know who you are. And she says, I'm the little girl who threw the brick in the air. So this is like the going deception. full circle to. The- yeah, going full circle all the way back to, you know, the bricklayer and his daughter. This is like, you know, she pretended. Yeah, the the joke she supposedly botched or whatever. Yeah. Right. It was all uh, was part of the joke all along. Right. And it was uh, and then the, the brick comes down and, and she says, you know, it's too late when he notices because it comes down and hits him right in the head and, and kills him. And where does God go when he dies? He goes to hell. And then she has that really great line. Roll on snare drum curtains. Good joke. And that's a direct callback to the comic. I, I think there's a scene in the comic where. It's, it's Rorschach t- talking. He says, like, I heard a joke once. Mm-hmm. And he tells the joke. It doesn't seem very funny. And then he says, doesn't he say good? He says like, pretty he much the exact, says same, the exact thing, right? same thing. It's the... Yeah, roll on snare drum, curtains, good joke. It's the Pagliacci joke with the... Yes. With the clown. Yes. Um, the clown. Yes. So, yeah, I that was a really, really cool nod back to the comic. And, uh, again, the, the framing device, She's as she's telling this joke, uh, or she finishes up this joke, we see her, you know, return to the motel. Mm-hmm. She opens up the briefcase and we finally get to see what it is. One bit of it is, a, I guess, an Esquire magazine. The, it looks like the, the title or the article in the magazine is a Silk Spectre Takes Manhattan. And it's a picture of what looks like her kind of hugging Dr. Manhattan. Um, and then the other piece, the, I guess the, the blue glow that we saw was <laughs> this giant blue dildo. Yeah. <laughs> that she carries around with her at all times like what the heck so clearly she's got like her her sexual hang-ups that involve uh dr manhattan it, it's funny because you know at the end of the comics you, we think that she's like over john and she's moved on with dan but then we we kind of see that maybe she's not completely over dr manhattan she's not over john osterman right yeah and then we see you know, she 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 has, she has to assemble this this dildo, yeah. um, but we we see her kind of look at it. But then the next scene, we see her knock on Petey's door, yeah. right? Because they're staying in separate rooms, and and you know, we find out that they sleep together. 
what's interesting is that we see Rorschach's journal again, right? He, I guess he has a physical copy of Rorschach's mm-hmm. journal. But then we see a watch on it that is at the time, I believe the time was like 11.50, which I swear is the exact time that we saw the, the pocket watch stop at last episode. Right, right. So I, I don't know what it is about the 11.50 time that they're trying to say, but it's definitely something I've noticed in two different episodes now. And that's different from like the motif of uh, two minutes before midnight, right? So this is this is something else. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it's all about. But also yeah. uh, backtracking a little bit, that that Esquire magazine, the Silk Spectre takes Manhattan. That's mm-hmm. another callback to the comic uh, to oh okay. to, to Laurie's mom. Um, so she's like the subject of all these uh, Tijuana Bible sex comics or whatever. So. I guess this is like a little nod to that. Do you think this is something that's a a, a fan center? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> that's a weird gift from a fan. I, I don't want to go there. But like one of the Pedia articles says that Dale Petey, he says he feels bad for her because of how the media portrayed her after like the events of the comics. Maybe like how she was like sexualized and then just kind of like her mom, you know. So. That's another tidbit from uh, the supplemental material that, that adds a little color. Yeah, and then uh, we, we see the, the scene basically kind of ends with... Oh, sorry, to go back to the, the, the when we learned that she sleeps with uh, Petey. Right. He's wearing that mask. The mask, yeah. So, which is really weird. <laughs> so did she tell him to wear it? Yeah, like, got, whose like, idea a... was it? Whose idea was it for him to wear that mask? She's got like a... Uh, a little capes fetish or something who knows maybe maybe yeah let's not let's not dive too too big on on that one yeah one more thing i like i also like that it was a reversal of like the trope that we always see where it's like the older man and the younger woman Mm -hmm. yeah and this is like a a reversal and it's pretty progressive i i kind of like that that's how this is portrayed and and you kind of look back at the episode and I definitely now, like after this scene, kind of see their banter is also a little flirty, right? Little Throughout flirty, the episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah, especially how she he tells a joke like, oh, can I have your autograph now? The scene ends with her basically ending her, her call. And she kind of has a little bit of a, a breakdown, right? She kind of says that, um, you know, she mentions that, you know, he doesn't care, that he, he's never cared about humanity and that, you know, she, she's probably not listening, uh, you know, after 30 years of her coming to these, like, she doesn't know why she comes to these booths. And we learned she's a platinum member. Uh, that means she probably comes a lot. So it, it definitely sh- uh, sheds light a lot about her character and her inability maybe to move on from John, too. And I think we get the feeling that he doesn't answer anyone's calls, right? Yeah. <laughs> my wife she was like so why do they even have these booths if he never answers them so i i was reading something and I, I found it was a really interesting interpretation of these booths that it's almost these are the new confessionals right exactly yeah like like people think you know he's basically everyone's called him a god right people think he's a god and and this is just a way for them to maybe expel whatever they want to and, and tell somebody if someone said, you know, this is not hooked up to anything, it's not even going to Mars, I would totally believe it. It's just, so, it's like a tool for someone to to confess or, or talk to somebody that they need to talk to. Right. Like imagine 
um, discovering that God is real, right? And he's on Mars, and you actually have a way to communicate with him. People would do that, right? They would do that no matter if he was oh, listening yeah. or not. So I think that's part of the design of these booths. It's interesting. It's a, it's a cool little world-building thing. So uh, she's she's walking away from this booth, um, and then she kind of um, stops, and then all of a sudden, a car is dropped right in front of her, and this is Angela's car, right? The one that got taken away last episode. Um, she looks up, doesn't really see anything, and then she she just starts laughing mm-hmm. because she gets the joke now, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think she kind of gets it, right? She she tells this joke about a, a falling brick, and then all of a sudden, as she's walking away, a, an object just falls right out of the air right in front of her. So I, I thought that was a really great way to kind of cap off the right. episode. Right, kind of bringing us back to the title of the episode, right? Uh, she was killed by <laughs> space junk. Multiple meanings in that, right? Space junk, you could say that uh, the Dr. Manhattan dildo is, is space junk. I guess. Yeah. Um, and that's also a, a line from a Devo song, um, which is a record. Uh, a record which she plays she in plays. her apartment. Yeah, which is also another callback to the comic because uh, when uh, Silk Spectre and uh, uh, Night Owl are suiting up, um, they mention Devo when, when Night Owl is talking about his costume. So another little, little callback. Very nice. Yeah, so I, I like I said, I thought this was a great great cap to this episode so uh one more one one last thing is so does that mean that will and dr manhattan are in, are in cahoots i guess i don't i don't know i mean it could be that dr manhattan could have teleported that thing in front of maybe. her he has the um it could ability. mean it, it could just be a coincidence right maybe like the car just yeah, we don't know. I mean, will I don't I don't know. I don't know why they would just drop a car out of right. nowhere. But yeah, like it could be a coincidence. Uh, we we don't know. No, Will's obviously not in it, right? So um, no, no. Yeah, we don't know what's going on with that. So I mean, we don't know if it's just they're not working with Doctor Mahan, but they know that this person's investigating Angela. So like, hey, let's give you a piece of evidence. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe. Angela's car yeah, lands maybe. right in front of you. <laughs> I mean, because she's probably investigate this car and find out it is Angela's car. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a wheelchair is still in it or something. You know what I mean? Like That's something true. like That's tie true. her back to the wheelchair. Because she definitely points out the fact that she notices wheelchair tracks. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's if it's, it means Dr. Manhattan's listening. But I just thought it was a funny coincidence. And I, like I said, a great way to cap off this episode. And again, this is probably my favorite episode so far. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It's a really great kind of deep character study. Like we just dive into her so much. And we learn so much about her, but then still building on the world a little bit. Yeah, and we can draw so much from the the comics too, right? Because oh yeah, is a major character from the comics, and she's now in uh, in the world of the show, thirty thirty some odd years later. So, so we're running pretty long, but I do want to talk a little bit about. So HBO has dropped their own official podcast, mm-hmm. right? Which I, I listened to and I thought it was really great. Yeah, and, it was really I mean, great. I, 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 it's definitely different than our podcast. Like their podcast doesn't go into like scene by scene breakdowns. It, it's really no. just a conversation with Dame, Damon Lindelof and kind of like the ideas that he has going on through his head. So I definitely recommend anyone to go out. Oh, yeah. If they're sure. interested in this world, just go listen to it because you'll learn a lot more. 
it really picks uh, Damon Lindelof's brain and and gets to like the the genesis of of the idea, and you get some behind the scenes insights to to the production of the show that you wouldn't get get elsewhere. So, yeah, I listened to it. It's great. I I would definitely recommend listening to that as a as a companion to our show and our show only you know so <laughs> <laughs> and um I, I think what we'll try to do is if we if there's anything that's relevant that comes from that podcast we'll also try to kind of mention because oh, yeah, i think there yeah. are a couple of things yeah. that damon lindelof kind of he tries his best not to give spoilers but he does say some things that tip you off um if no one really wants to hear this just skip ahead a couple minutes uh-huh. um, because it, it could spoil a, potentially some things that happen in, in in the next couple episodes so if you really don't want to hear this just skip a couple a couple minutes ahead but i mean he does mention that the clones well, or what people are calling the clones of mr phillips and crookshanks he even says like he doesn't classify them as yeah clones. he's like oh that that might be a misnomer um so. yeah so that's interesting like i wonder what they are if they're not clones who knows what he means <laughs> yeah um, right yeah who knows what damon lindelof means but the another interesting uh, little tidbit from the the official podcast is damon lindelof said that they shot all of jeremy irons scenes first before getting into production past the pilot so they shot all those scenes on location in wales so pretty much whatever happens with Adrian Veidt, with Ozymandias, it was already locked in when they started production on the rest of the show. Um, so every episode past the pilot, whatever happens with Ozymandias has been locked in already. And, and what Jeff means is that, you know, like as production goes on, like people, you know, they could do rewrites or yeah. they can kind of uh, tweak things. But what they couldn't do is that they couldn't tweak Adrian Veidt's characters as right. the season went on, right? So it, it, it became this kind of fixed story. And another thing that he lets on in the official podcast is that he says, don't worry, these two storylines are converging. Right. So I think that's a big clue for us to kind of keep watching Adrian Veidt's story and how it might tangle back into the main story of Angela and I guess now Lori. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something that we should be looking out for in the next couple of weeks or as the as the story progresses. One thing I thought was pretty interesting from the conversation is I, I don't know if he if it was just something that they played around with or but he does mention that the idea of the red predations doesn't only just apply to African Americans, right? He he mentions like internment camps, he mentions uh, Native Americans having their land taken. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was just an idea he was talking about and it evolved to just being African-Americans or if the show later will talk about other races and, and the kind of the dues that they're owed right? because of some of the, the racial inequalities that they've faced. He also mentioned that the idea of the red predations and the reparations isn't out of nowhere. I mean, obviously it's a real concept, but pertaining to the Tulsa massacre in particular, Johnny Cochran tried to uh, file suit against Oklahoma for for these descendants of the Tulsa massacre, right? But he lost, basically saying that the statute of limitations had expired, and the, these descendants hadn't actually suffered any of the trauma, right? Yeah, from those events. Yeah, right, right. So he, uh, Damon Lindelof in the podcast, he said that. This world of Watchmen is like, what happens if Robert Redford was president and he had a more liberal 
slanted Supreme Court or or higher court that actually allowed these reparations to to pass. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting. So uh, if you haven't listened to the official podcast, you should. It, it gives a lot of insight. It's it's really really great. And if you're listening to our podcast, it means you probably like podcasts. So I def- definitely recommend yeah, that one. Yeah. So. But yeah, I think that will uh, conclude this week's episode. Uh, Jeff, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on my blog, Strange Harbors, www.strangeharbors.com. I write about film, TV, uh, pop culture in general. Um, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Strange Harbors. And uh, my name is Derek. I, I do uh, a, a different podcast, uh, another podcast called the Film Trailers Podcast, where we do a lot of discussion on, on film and film trailers. Uh, you can find that on, on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, basically the other major platforms. You can find me at Instagram and Twitter at the same tag at, at the wrong Daik. Daik is spelled D-A-Y-I-K. Uh, if you like this show, please uh, go ahead and subscribe to us on your podcast platform, especially those that use um, Apple uh, Podcasts or iTunes. Give us a star rating if you can. I mean, it really helps to get our podcasts out some more people and it really helps to kind of boost our presence on 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 that platform so definitely um you know help us out in, in any way you guys can and uh if you guys uh, have any uh, questions or comments you can also also email us at uh who watches the podcast at gmail.com or you can uh, email <laughs> jeff directly yeah i guess <laughs> so we things. got we got some mail this week so that was... <laughs> we have different outlets for you guys but uh yeah i think that will uh, conclude this week's episode yeah well we'll see you next week